Here's my question this morning, and I feel confident that there should be a majority answer of yes. Have you ever had a dream that has just unsettled you and stuck with you? Yes. Uh, I've had many different kinds. I think the kind that I always heard about and now experience and testify as the worst are those dreams in which I find myself walking into a college or seminary class to discover a term paper is due that day that I not only didn't write, but I never even knew existed. And by not turning in the term paper, I will flunk the class and not pass and not graduate. I always heard those were terrible and I can confirm those dreams unsettle you, wake up in a cold sweat. I give you that because as we move forward in the book of Daniel, we are leaving the first six chapters in which we see narrative uh, stories that have happened to Daniel, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And as we come to chapter 7, the rest of the book are a series of dreams, of visions that Daniel received, many of which deeply unsettled him as to their nature. And as we do this, and, and, and the reason they unsettled them is because they point to, for Daniel, what was all future events. Now, as we walk through this, for us, we're going to discover some of these things are past, some of these things are present, and some of these things, even for us, are yet to come. And as we do this, and as we walk into these sections that we would call biblically prophecy, I'm going to remind us we've got to do so humbly. Now, here's what I mean by humbly. For some of us, we look at these sections, and we go, oh, prophecy, end times prophecy, that scares me. I'm just, I just not going to read it. Listen, God put it in there, which means He doesn't want us to be ignorant about it. And if we're just scared of it, that what that's going to produce is an even greater fear as we watch the world move to where God says it's moving. There is a strength and courage that comes from what God has laid out for us. But there's another pole, which is the pole of arrogance, where when it comes to end times prophecy, we, we already know every single thing that's going to happen down to the name of the person who's going to do it. And we get dogmatic and divisive, and how dare you disagree with me? Listen. The Pharisees had access to everything we're going to look at today. They knew it better than any of us in this room knew it. And when Jesus showed up, they put him to death. So there should be a humility on our part. We're going to seek to know what is clear. We're going to acknowledge what is somewhat murky. If I land a certain place, I'll own it as my opinion and as why as your pastor. Doesn't mean you can't disagree and we're going to apply it correctly. So if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Book of Daniel chapter 7. We're going to pick up in verse 1. Here's what it says. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Now, two quick things. One, when we left last week, we were all of a sudden in the Persian Empire, Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Great. This tells us in the first year of Belshazzar. This is going to happen chronologically prior to the, the, the events of Daniel chapter 5. After Daniel chapter 4, prior to Daniel chapter 5 is when this happens, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. It also says dreams and visions, which are going to tell us right off the bat that what we're seeing here 
He's literally seeing, but it has a symbolic and prophetic meaning. So he's on his bed, he sees these things, and look what it says. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it, which I just think is an incredible irony. Maybe your Bible says substance. This is one of the most in-depth prophecies of world history in all of Scripture, if not maybe the most in-depth. And Daniel didn't write down everything he saw and heard. Just a summary. Here's what he says. I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, there is debate. What do we mean by the four winds of heaven? Some will say, well, that's, that's God's judgment. Some will say, pointing to Revelation 7, that there are four angels there in Revelation 7 who hold back the winds of the four corners of the earth. Some will say it's a, a variety of factors. What, what's key before we do that is, what does it mean by the great sea? They were stirring up the great sea. Well, what's not meant would be the Mediterranean Sea. What is meant is throughout Scripture, the idea of the sea. And, and, and picture with me, when you think about the sea and you think about the turmoil, the danger, the large waves that can capsize ships, the chaos, the unrest that comes with the powerful waves on a stormy ocean. Listen to how, what Scripture compares this to. Look, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of the nations, who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations rumble like the rumbling of many waters. This is Isaiah 17. There are multiple places in Scripture where the image of the, the chaos, the turmoil, the unrest, the unpredictability, the danger of the seas are compared with the turmoil, the unrest, the unpredictability, the chaos, the danger of sinful and broken humanity. So when it says that the, the winds were blowing against the sea, what we're actually looking at, and, and this would make more sense, is either somehow this is God's will and judgment striving against, or, or as some would say, it may be a variety of factors of what is God doing, of various other factors that are coming upon the great sea, stirring up the great sea, dealing with, contending with the sinfulness, the chaos of broken humanity. And then look what he says, and we're gonna, I'm going to read a long chunk here, and then we're going to come back in a second and really unpack it. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea. So out of the sinfulness, the brokenness, the turbulence of sinful humanity, four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first beast to come was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a human mind or a human heart was given to it. Then behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side. It was lopsided, one side higher than the other, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. And after this I kept looking, and a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that came before it. 
and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, I tried to find some really good pictures of all of this for you this week to help you out, and I just couldn't find any that would really work to put up on a screen. But obviously, here Daniel in the middle of the night, he sees this vision where he sees one beast, and obviously these beasts aren't, uh, aren't creatures we see in our world. There's, there's no eagle-winged lion running around, flying around. Wouldn't that be a terror uh, if we had winged lions flying around the skies? But he sees these beasts that clearly represent something. And then when he gets to the fourth beast, the fourth beast is, is so vicious, is so destructive, is so terrifying, he can't even find any other reference in the animal kingdom to say it looked like or it was like. And so he's in the midst of this picture where he sees these, these vicious and vile and dangerous creatures, and, and now one of them has a horn that, that's able to see, that has knowledge, that's able to speak great boasts. And into this, look what happens. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white like snow, the hair of his head was like pure wool, his throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. All of a sudden, in the midst of seeing these beasts, we find out that Daniel sees into the heavens. And he sees the heavenly court, the divine council of God, where, where God and the angels dwell. And he sees specifically in the midst of these thrones, there's the throne where the Ancient of Days, God himself, sits on that throne. In the Ancient of Days, God is described clothed like white snow, referencing his holiness, his purity, his righteousness, his glory. Hair of his head was pure wool, referencing uh, in a sense, giving the picture of someone, who, of, of someone who is aged, but not aged from a standpoint of God is old, God is outside of time, He is eternal. Aged from the standpoint of one who is wise, possessing all knowledge. He sits on a throne ablaze with flames, almost in words straight out of Ezekiel, a will were a burning fire, speaking of His holy and just, His righteous judgments. And His judgments aren't just constrained to Him, but it says a river of fire like molten lava was flowing forth. His, his judgment was going out. And in the midst of all of this, it says the court set. God sits on His throne. Those other of His divine counsel sit down on theirs, and it says the books were opened. The books, meaning that place of record where God, who knows all things, sees all things, has written down and kept the records of all things that have been done right and all things that have been done wrong by all morally responsible beings. And in this, he said, I kept looking because the sound of the boastful words from the horn was speaking. So as Daniel's watching this scene play out in the heavenly throne room, he's still hearing the horn, the, the small horn boast and, and say these things. and. As he's hearing him, he says, I kept looking until, and catch this, the beast, the horrifying fourth beast was slain, 
its body destroyed and given to the burning fire. And almost the most anticlimactic statement, here's this fierce beast. It was killed. Body was burned, chunked in the fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. Now, Daniel, at this point, I feel very confident. He understands that these beasts and his intrigue with these beasts is not because he's some kind of a zoologist who's trying to figure out how did we crossbreed and get these crazy-looking animals. Daniel knows enough to recognize that these beasts, beasts in Scripture, uh, can, can, can be literal beasts and animals. They can also symbolize, remember, Nebuchadnezzar was king of the whole world and was laid low like a beast. A beast represents the, the depravity of mankind. We who were made in the image of God as human beings who should reflect His glory with a royalty and a, a regalness with an intelligence instead we live driven by our instincts, impulses, passions, and desires, just like wild beasts. He understands these beasts are reflective of kingdoms of man and that these horns, horns are representative in Scripture of kings. And kings represent what? Kingdoms. And so he's intrigued by all this, and all of a sudden he watches as this one horn who's, who's speaking these boastful things is all of a sudden silenced instantly with almost no fight, nothing going on. And those other beasts who represent kingdoms, their dominion, what power they have, they're powerless to resist. It's taken away. Now understand, if we're watching this, and there's lots we haven't answered yet, but if we're watching this, well now, who's in charge? There's a power vacuum. There's no kingdom. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to this one was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He says, I kept watching in the midst of this power vacuum, riding on the clouds, which both in Scripture and even in other ancient religions was representative of one who is divine. This isn't another angel. This isn't some human. This is, this is God riding on the clouds, one who's like a son of man, which seems to hint that somehow this one who's coming, he is both divine and also in some way human. And not only that, but we know he's divine because this one who's like a son of man, he didn't bow before the Ancient of Days. He didn't hide himself like the angels do from the Ancient of Days with their wings. No, he stood before him as an equal, one who is distinct from the Ancient of Days, yet one who is equal with the Ancient of Days. And as we'll go further, we'll discover that the one who is the Son of Man is also described in the same term as the Ancient of Days because our God is one God, three distinct, unique, co-equal, co-eternal persons, a triune God. And to this son was given, to this son of man was given the kingdom, the glory, that, that everyone might serve him and that the kingdom he was given, it has no end. His sovereignty has no bounds. His rule will know no opposition. 
It's an eternal kingdom that he establishes forevermore. And so Daniel said, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me. The visions in my mind kept alarming me. And I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So there he is. He's in this heavenly picture. He approaches what we must assume is some kind of angelic being, and he says, hey, what is happening? And this is what he said. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now, here's what he says, and this should start to maybe, if, if, we're, if we have a good memory, start to remind us, we've heard about four kingdoms before in Daniel chapter 2. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of this great statue. It had a head of gold. It had a chest and arms of silver. It had a, had a waist and legs of bronze, and it had shins and feet of iron and a mixture of iron and clay. And you'll remember on, on those feet were ten toes. And remember what Daniel shared to Nebuchadnezzar. These are four kingdoms that will arise. You, Babylon, you're the gold head, Nebuchadnezzar. After that will be, uh, will be what we know as Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. And it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar, in his dream, he sees this grand, impressive statue of a man because the kingdoms of this world to human eyes seem grand and impressive. From God's standpoint, when Daniel sees the vision from eternity's perspective, it's not grand, it's beastly, vile, and evil because the kingdoms of this world rebel against their Maker. So the kingdoms of these world. Well, let's go back through. So let's go back through and think about this now because we have the benefit of some history Daniel didn't have. A lion with eagle wings. Do you know what the kingdom of Babylon is symbolized as in Scripture? A lion and an eagle. Both are kings of their domains, one on land, one on night. Do you know what? The, the, the blue, beautiful Ishtar gates that adorned the capital of Babylon, do you know what's on them? Golden lions with eagle's wings. The first kingdom, that first beast, the lion with eagle's wings, represents the kingdom of Babylon. And you say, well, what about the plucking out the setting on the feet? Well, that seems to be a reference back to Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar, who really primarily represents the whole empire, after he dies, there will only be a few decades before the empire is conquered and loses its power and majesty in, into the times of history. Nebuchadnezzar was laid low. His glory was removed. His wings plucked off. He was laid low, but then God set him back on his feet, restored his sanity to him, and made him like a man. The first beast is Babylon. The second beast, the bear with one side higher than another. We'll see a little bit more of, of this beast in a different imagery next week, but the second beast would represent the Median Persian Empire. Because here's, here's what's interesting. You say the beast, well, one side was higher than the other. Why is that? Well, because the Persian Empire was made up of two empires, the empire of the Persians and the empire of the Medes. But in that relationship, it was not equal. The Persians were more powerful than the Medes. Hence the bear, one side is higher than the other. Three ribs in the bear's mouth. What, what could that represent? Well, well many, many see that. There's three major conquests that brought Persia to world power, that with the aggressiveness and the size and ferocity of a bear, 
The size of the Persian Empire expanded because there were three primary conquests. The conquest of Lydia in 546, the conquest of Babylon in 539, and the conquest of Egypt in 525. The three ribs seem to represent the three major conquests of other world powers by Persia. Persia would be on the scene from the mid-500s to the mid-330s when a new empire sweeps through the known world, conquering everything from Europe down to India in less than 10 years with the speed and bloodlust uh, ferocity that leopards are known for. This would be the kingdom of Greece. A leopard with four wings shows you a kingdom that's going to move quick, fast, agile speed. A leopard is known for their bloodlust, and the Greeks would conquer in less than 10 years. They would go from conquering Macedonia or, or Asia Minor all the way to India. Legend has it that when they conquered their last, Alexander the Great cried, for there was nothing more to conquer. Now, it's interesting, though, that leopard has four heads. Well, four heads, heads represent kings. Because Alexander dies before he can make it back to rule his empire. And what happens to the Greek empire? It's divided in fourths to his four generals. It's divided in fourths. Antipur will take Greece and Macedonia. Lysimachus will take Thrace and most of Asia Minor, that's Turkey. Seleucius I will take Syria, Babylon, and in the Middle East. Ptolemy I will take Egypt and the, and the Holy Land. And after Greece, there comes a different kind of empire, the likes of which had never been seen before, and whose impact echoes on thousands of years after it's done. That would be the Roman Empire, known for its brutality, for its iron-fisted hand, for its legions, for its ability to go out and rule and conquer everything. This is the fourth beast. And this is exactly what the angel said. These are four kingdoms. They say, well, there's been other world empires. Yeah, there have. What's unique about these four? These are the four world empires who conquer and rule the promised land, whose rule, whose reign, whose impact will be intertwined with God's plan and work of redemption. Now, here's what's unique. That fourth beast, we've seen that aspect of Rome. Now, Roman Empire proper died in the mid-400s A.D. There is a sense in which Rome still lives on. When you think about the last 1,600 years of world history that has been dominated by kingdoms and empires that are the European descendants of Rome. Now, certainly there's been other empires, there's been other kingdoms, there's been, when you think about what has dominated the last 1,600 years, it has been nations that came out of Rome, even to this day. Now, what hasn't happened? Those ten horns represent ten kings. We'll see this. Look, look back with me. It says, then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from the others. This is verse 19. Exceedingly dreadful, its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, it devoured, crushed, trampled down the remainder. And the meaning of the ten horns which were on his head and the other horn which came up before which three of the horns fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking at that horn, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. 
until the Ancient of Days came down and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So just like us, we go, well, we see this, but what we've never seen is, we've never seen 10 kingdoms co-ruling at the same time out of Rome. This doesn't make sense. What it, because church family, some of this has happened, some is happening, and some has yet to happen. And this is what Daniel's asking. Tell me about these 10, these 10 horns. And what about this little horn who comes up and, and he forces three of the horns down into submission to him? And not only that, but this, this little horn, this ruler who arises, who, who puts down and conquers three of the other kingdoms, he puts the other seven kingdoms under his, under his, uh, under his power. He is fighting actively the people of God and he's winning until God himself comes down and brings judgment. This is what the angel says. He says, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. It'll be different from the other kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth, tread it down and crush it. As for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, out of the fourth beast, 10 kings will arise. And the implication is they're all arising at the same time. It's not one after another like the beast have been, it's all at once. But after they arise, there will be one other. He will be different from the previous kings. He will subdue, it means to take by force and conquer, three of the kings. He will speak out against the Most High. He will blaspheme. He will claim divinity. He will wear down, which is a word that, it, think of your clothing when you just beat your clothing and wear it all the time, it wears down. It's the idea of every day making life absolutely miserable until someone caves. He will wear down the saints of the highest one, not only that, and there's an interesting little statement, it says he will try to make alterations in times and in law. He's going to try to play with the calendar and religion and law and center it around him. And you go, well, that sounds kind of weird and different. Do you know what the French Revolution did is they tried to remove all vestige of religion in France? Change the calendar. You want to know why today in a history book it says BCE and CE before common era and common era? Because we don't like BC before Christ and AD, the year of our Lord. It's not that crazy. He will speak out against the Most High. He will make alterations in time, and, and they will be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. Now, we're going to see that coming up later in Daniel, so I'm not going to elaborate on it today other than to tell you it's referring to three and a half years. You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? It'll come... We'll see it again. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole of heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and the dominions will serve and obey him. The angel says, out of this fourth beast, ten kings. After those 10 kings have arisen and they're co-ruling co their nations at the same time, a, a new ruler's gonna rise up. He's gonna violently conquer three of those kings. He's gonna rule the other ones. He's gonna speak blasphemy against the Most High. He's gonna actively fight and wear down the saints of the Holy One, and he's gonna try to change and restructure and make all of time and law about him. Who is this little horn? Well, we'll see this little horn again in Daniel. Don't worry, there's more to be said about him. This little horn, we would know from Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians as the man of lawlessness. We would know from Revelation 13, this, this horn to be the beast of the dragon, Revelation 13. We would know this to be more precisely by the name that John ascribes to him in 1 John 2, the capital A, Antichrist. That's who this little horn is. 
It's how we know it's future. We've seen lowercase a antichrist. We've seen the spirit of the antichrist. Certainly those things have been prevalent all throughout history. But the antichrist, the, the single individual who will wield power over all the world, who will, be, who will have eyes, he will see, he will have a knowledge that seems beyond what is normal for a human. He will have a mouth that boasts greatly against God, against his people. But we know from scripture will be deceptive and pervasive and bring people in. This is the little horn. And this is the one whom Daniel looks at. But in the midst of this, catch what's here. No matter how powerful and mighty and how boastful this little horn gets, when God sits down to pass judgment, he dies. His body's destroyed. He's thrown in the fire. Scripture doesn't try to make a cool movie out of it. It's the most anticlimactic statement you've ever seen. Because here's the reality, church family. We live in a world that is filled from our perspective of the chaos and turbulence because we live in the dominion of beasts. But understand, church family, the judgment of God was absolutely sure in coming to pass, and the kingdom of the Son of Man will obliterate all of the kingdoms of the beast and will be forever. This is the point of the passage. We live in a reality of chaos and the dominion of beasts. We live in a world that's chaotic, that is dangerous, that's ruled by people who live, move, and breathe, driven by their instincts and impulses, just like a beast. We live in a world where injustice occurs, where God is opposed and His people are put down. And by the way, we know that what we see now is only the birth pain. We know from Jesus in Matthew 24, we know from the rest of Scripture, what we see now is not the worst it will get. The worst it will get is reflective here in the, in the, in the little horn. We live in an empire, we live in a world, we understand church family, we live in a world where we make real decisions. Every one of these empires, someone made the decision, hey, Persia, we need to go take out Babylon, tonight's the night to do it. Persia made it. Everyone, there are real decisions made by, by real moral agents, by real human beings, real decisions that made. History's not fatalistic. We make real decisions. Jesus says what's going to usher in the day of the Antichrist is the fact that the love of many will grow cold because sinfulness will abound. We make decisions to sin. And the more we make decisions to sin, our love grows cold. It sets up the stage. Listen, we don't live in a fatalistic world where our decisions don't matter. Our decisions matter. And we are living in a world where a real antichrist will arise at some point. And we've seen all sorts of lowercase antichrists who rise up, who deceive people, who pull people in, and then they're conquered. We've never seen one, though, who's done it worldwide and essentially unopposed. He will be gifted, persuasive. He will be desirable. He will be popular in the culture, and according to Jesus, he will seek to deceive even the saints of God, which is why we can't be ignorant of this stuff. Amen. Ignorance of God, of his plan, of his will, of his word could find us starting to bend the knee to an idol we shouldn't bow to. We live in a world of chaos, but we also live in a world where the Ancient of Days sits on His throne. 
Only God is eternal. He has no beginning or end. He is the sovereign Lord over all creation. Did you see how many times the bear got up and was told arise and devour? The leopard was given dominion. The little horn was allowed to have dominion. And as soon as God's judgment came on all of the deeds that were done, all of the deeds done in those kingdom where people could have chosen God but didn't, when God's judgment come, he rips dominion away. He is in complete and total control. Those kingdoms don't have control. They are conquered without a fight. Even the three kingdoms, the three beasts that are given an extension of life, did you notice? For an appointed period of time. And they don't get to go, can I appeal and have a new trial? Not only that, but speaking of trials, we see God's judgment wins. Amen. The books are opened. His judgment stands. Justice comes through. They say, well, if God is sovereign, if He's in control, but, but also we as humans have the ability to make decisions, and, 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 and humans that are broken and bound by their sin are, are only going to make sinful decisions, and, and how do all these things play together? Listen, this vision doesn't solve the, 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 solve the mystery of how God's sovereignty and man's free will go, to, free will go together, and we're not going to try to today. What we know is God is sovereign. He's in control. He's on His throne. What looks like chaos and danger to us is not chaos to Him. It's just wickedness, and He's going to deal with it. But at the same time, what is going on? Because there's another reality, the reality of the Son of Man and His eternal kingdom. The reality that the Son of Man will step before the Ancient of Days and He will be granted, granted this, this eternal kingdom. Well, who is the Son of Man? Well, here's the great news, church family. Daniel lived in a day where he didn't know the name of the Son of Man, but I can tell you absolutely with total confidence the name of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You say, well, what do you mean Jesus is the Son of Man? Listen, what did Jesus say in Matthew 24 talking about, here's how you'll know the end times. What did he say? And you will see the Son of Man riding on the clouds. What do you think he's referring to? Daniel 7. A few chapters later, after Matthew 24 and Matthew 26, he's before the Pharisees and all these people are, they can't even, all the people they have lying can't even get their stories right. And finally, Caiaphas looks at Jesus and said, just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And what does he say? You will look up and see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. So to anyone who says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, baloney. You can't make a more bold statement saying, I'm the Son of Man. Yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you're looking for. And we know it was that because as soon as Jesus said it, they all tore their robes and said blasphemy. You know what blasphemy is? A human claiming to be God, which is what they're accusing Jesus of. Jesus claims to be the Son of Man. In fact, it is his favorite title for himself. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the rider on the clouds. He's the one who's fully God. He's also the one who's fully man. He's the one who stands before God. In fact, isn't it interesting? So he's unique from God the Father. Jesus is God the Son. But we only believe in one God. Jesus is described in Revelation 1 with the same exact description as the Ancient of Days. Because Jesus is unique from the Father because we believe in a triune God. Not three gods, one God. One God. Three distinct, unique, co-equal, co-eternal persons. Now here's what's important, church family. Daniel sees this vision of the Son of Man coming in front of the Ancient of Days. I can tell you when it happened. It's already happened. 
have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, although he's God, he did not recall, recall equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't come and lord over his godhood among us, but he emptied himself. He chose not to rely on his godhood and taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, fully God, fully man, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. That is death on a cross. What did Jesus say? We all know John 3.16. You know what it says right after John 3.16? For the Son of Man, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What did Jesus say later on in John chapter 12 and the people didn't understand it? He said, I must be lifted up. And they said, what do you mean the son of man lifted up? You see, because the people thought the son of man would come in and just conquer and rule everything. What they didn't understand and what Jesus connects for us is that the son of man who stands before the ancient of days, who's given the kingdom, is also the suffering servant of Isaiah who goes and makes the sacrifice for sin on his people's behalf. When did he come? Jesus died the death on a cross. And look what it says. For this reason, in Philippians 2, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those who are in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, it doesn't mean everybody will do it willingly. We who are in Christ will do it willingly and joyfully. Those who have opposed Christ they won't be any joy, it'll be terror, but they will bow nonetheless. You see, here's the reality, church. And you say, well, the Son of Man being, being given, Jesus is the Son of Man. What do we mean that, that He's being given the kingdom? If He's God, He's always had the kingdom. Yes, if G Jesus is God. He's never lacked glory, he's had all glory. There's never been a time he's not been sovereign. There's never been a time he's not in control. What he is being handed by the kingdom is not something he lacks. Do you notice? The Son of Man is also the suffering servant, the suffering servant who goes to the cross to pay the debt we owe and cannot pay ourselves so that those of us who place our faith in who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf who confess with our mouth that He is Lord, who believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, those whom He gave the right to become children of God, those of us who are Christian in the biblical sense, because we have repented of the sin we were born with and born into, and we have asked Jesus in faith to save us. What is different is Jesus' work on the cross and His conquering sin, death, and, and conquering death and the resurrection. He offers us salvation where we're reconciled to God, where we're made children of God. And what does the New Testament say we are? Co-heirs with Christ. The kingdom Jesus has given is not something He lacked. It's something we could never have. But now we can because the Son of Man was high and lifted up on that cross, taking what rightfully is ours, the Son of Man. And do you notice even in here, look what it says, that we might serve Him. His kingdom will not pass away. Notice what it says in verse 18, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom. We have an inheritance. It's in the coming kingdom, not in this kingdom we live in now. And we have, if we're in Christ, that inheritance because who Jesus is and what 
he's done. His kingdom, church family, it will be free of sin, of pain, of grief, of loss, of sickness, of violence and death. It will be free for those of us who are in it. We will never know temptation of any kind. We will never know loneliness. We will never know sorrow. We will never know brokenness in relationships. We will never know injustice from the courts, bosses, principals, governors. We will never know any of it because it will be completely righteous and holy. It will be a kingdom when when we walk into it, Jesus with his nail-scarred hand from that cross will take it and, and come to the scars and tears of our eyes and he will with his own hand wipe the tears from our eyes. This is the kingdom that we're awaiting. This is his kingdom. This is our inheritance. By the way, and we haven't given it due time, we'll see it in the later weeks, but it's a kingdom for every person, nation, and language. It's not a kingdom for one ethnicity. It's made up in Revelation 7, 9 of every tongue and tribe that has ever lived. It is a kingdom. We see in this passage God's heart is to seek and save anyone in this world who would respond. That God made people in his image, that the nations rejected him at the Tower of, of Babel after restarting everything and with, with Noah, that, that he gave them over, Romans 1, to their sinful desires. But God, who was a faithful God, didn't quit on all the nations of the world. Instead, he chose a special nation to bring forth a special Messiah, one who is fully God and fully man, the Son of Man, who's the suffering servant, to go to that cross to pay the price that anybody from any tongue or tribe who says, Jesus, yes, you're Lord, yes, I'm a sinner, I will trust you, that he will save them and he will rescue them from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light, Amen. which we know in part today and is coming in full. And here's the reality, church family, when you look, when you look at this passage and you see the specificity, and we'll see it in the weeks to come, the specificity of every one of these empires, and it gets even more specific in Daniel 8, 9, 10, and 11. It is specific about what happens. Why? Because God exists outside of time and he knows what's going to happen. And when we look and see how specific all of this is that has happened, you know what it means? There is no chance in all of creation that what he says is going to happen won't happen. Amen. He's coming. His kingdom's real. There's some things that are going to happen beforehand. There's an antichrist who's going to arise. There's going to be some suffering for the people of God. But Jesus wins. Amen. And because Jesus wins, so do his people. So let me just give you real quick, what do we do with this? One, we need to decide what kingdom we want to live in. Amen. There's some of us in this room and watching online. You think you're in Jesus' kingdom because you were born to Christian parents. No, no one's born a Christian. You think you're in his kingdom because you've done a lot of good stuff, because you've read some Bible. No, the Pharisees did a lot of good stuff and read some Bible, and they're not in his kingdom. The only way to be in the kingdom of God is from a salvation that comes by grace through faith for repenting that you are a sinner, acknowledging, God, you're right, I'm a sinner, I've done wrong, I'm, I'm outside a relationship with you, but Jesus, you live the life I can't live, you died the death I deserve to die, you rose from the grave conquering death, and I am trusting you as Lord. My life belongs, needs to, my, I need my life to belong to you because it's what I was made for. That's the only way to be in the kingdom. You can have a lot of stuff in this world. You can ascend to the highest heights of this world. So many have. And they've all turned back into dust. We need to decide today 
This is the call of salvation today. Which kingdom do you want to be a part of? And I've got great news. If your heart's bursting in your chest, the Lord's stirring your heart, and you say whether you're a kid, a teenager, a, a young adult, a median adult, an old adult, well, no matter where you're at, if, if your heart, today can be the day of salvation for you. Jesus loves to save when, his, when people cry out for salvation. You can do it right now on your own. If you've got questions, you can come down and talk to Pastor Zai down front. If, and the invitation, if you're online, you can respond to the prompt. We need to decide what kingdom we're, we're part of. But here's the second part. For those of us who've, who've come to that point of decision, we're in his kingdom by grace through faith. Brothers and sisters, we've got to decide how we're going to live as members of his kingdom. He's called us out of darkness into marvelous night, not to live as we want to live, but to proclaim his excellencies. We're urged as aliens and strangers because we don't belong to the kingdom of the fourth beast. We belong to the kingdom which is coming. We're urged to abstain from the lusts which wage war against the soul. We find all throughout Scripture calls to how we're to live in our ethics, not just in our ethics, but in our mission. Go therefore and make disciples. Church family, let's be clear. The, the apostles looked at Jesus that day he was to ascend, and they said, okay, Jesus, is now the time the kingdom's coming? And Jesus didn't say, well, let's have a discussion about the end times. He said, it's none of your business. He says, your business is to go in the power of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you and be a witness to every single pocket of this world. And you know what we find the early church not doing? We don't find the records of them debating and being divided and distracted and over well, which, which one of the kingdoms is this horn going to be and which one is this horn going to be. And what do we see them doing? They go out and they preach the gospel. They show up at church even when it's hard. They submit to the preached word of God. They fellowship. They give sacrificially tithes and offerings. They take care of each other. They do it at risk of their life. Church family, if we understand this right, the things that this does is we don't get distracted and divided over it. Instead, we, go, we get laser focused and go, this is what we're about. There's a reason we do things like sports camp. There's a reason we send students to Guatemala. There's a reason we challenge to go into our workplaces, our school places, or even our own homes to be a witness because it's what he's about. It's what the kingdom's about. And so part of the challenge today is it's got to, we got to decide how we're going to live. Part of the challenge today is this. If we're not to be distracted but be laser focused, part of it is also this. We're not to be afraid. In every situation where you see Jesus or other writers in Scripture bring things up about the end times, it is never to terrify us. It's actually so that we might not be afraid. So that as we watch a world going from bad to worse to worst, We will sit back and go, this is hard. This is frightening. But no matter what my eyes think is chaos, my God is on his throne. Amen. He is coming back. I must be faithful by his power and grace. Amen. I love, uh, I love good stories. I love Lord of the Rings. I love Lord of the Rings because there's all sorts of lines in Lord of the Rings that speak to our world. At one of the worst points in the story is Sam and Frodo were trying to destroy the ring and things have gone from bad to worse to worse to worse. Frodo's discouraged, about to give up, and Sam says, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. 
And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. When the sun shines out, it will shine the clearer. But those who, those were the stories that stayed with you. They meant something, even if you were too small to understand, because people in those stories had lots of chance of turning back, but they didn't because they held on to something. Frodo says, what are we holding on to, Sam? And Sam says, well, there's some good in this world, and it's worth fighting for. Church family, when we understand this passage, we're not holding on to hope that there's good in this world worth fighting for. We're holding on to hope that the only one who is good came into this world, dealt with the problem, died on our behalf, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, is seated on his throne, and is coming back. We hold out hope because the only one who is good is on his way. So may we be found this week not afraid and not distracted, but faithful, anchored in hope. Jesus, we look to you in this time of invitation. We praise you that we can anchor our soul by remembering who you are and where you sit. And you don't sit lifeless in a grave. You sit alive forevermore on your throne. So, Lord, you're dealing with us how you want to deal with us. May you find us responsive to you. It's in your name I pray.